continue or begin by continuing appropriately, and you'll be pleased about this, uh, on a sporting theme. Um, <clears throat> I viewed many of the matches in the recent Rugby World Cup on television. And we have this facility in our TV, even when you're not there, to record them all so you can watch them again later or watch them if you miss them. However, I have a confession to make. I didn't re-watch a single game. Because as an England supporter, there wasn't anything worth watching again. Not even a scratchy, narrow win over Scotland, let alone an abject defeat against France. However, if you are an England supporter, there is one game that you will love to watch again and again and again. In 2003, <laughs> at Sydney's Telstra Stadium, England against Australia, the hosts. And as you watch it again, and you see England in the lead almost till the end of ordinary time, and then the Australians equalize. As it goes into extra time, and England take the lead again, and Australia come back again. And as the clock runs down, and it looks like it's going to be sudden death, if you're an England supporter, you can watch it, and you can relax and rejoice. Why? Because you know the line-out will come over, and Matt Dawson at Scrum Half will get the ball, and they will throw it across to Johnny Wilkinson, and he will kick the ball over with the final drop goal. There's the picture. <laughs> that wins the match, and England will be victorious. It happened, and nothing can change the glorious outcome. <laughs> but, forget the word glorious, and replace it with the word trivial. And forget rugby. For there is only one event and one outcome that truly merits the word glorious. In comparison with which a rugby game is utterly insignificant. And although this glorious outcome of which I speak has not yet happened, it is absolutely certain to happen in the future. Because God himself revealed it to a man called John. This man John didn't have any pictures to show us of the scene, but he pictured it in words. And you'll find a record of what was revealed to him in the last book of the Bible, which is called Revelation. Because it uncovers or unveils what is hidden from our sight. How the story of our world will end. The conclusion of what we began looking at this morning, if you're here. The mission of God, the story of salvation. This morning, we saw the beginnings of the story in the first book of the Bible, which is called Genesis. Which means beginnings, of course. In the beginnings, and we look forward, we saw in creation how God created the heavens and the earth. This evening we're going to start at the other end of the story in the last book of the Bible at endings and we're going to look back and see how God finishes it all and God finishes the story right at the end there. David can bring up the picture there, sorry Dave. And uh, right at the end there, uh, coming down to the end, we have recreation, a new heaven and a new earth. 
So let's start at the end and read the account. And if you're a Christian, you should enjoy this infinitely more than even any rugby game or anything else like that. And if you are not yet a Christian, I want you to grip something of the account of the story itself. You can either turn in your Bible or maybe, maybe, maybe just listen and try and picture the scene, the final scene, okay? It's not quite the final scene, but this is Revelation chapter 21. And this is what John saw. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. And be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. Or mourning. Or crying. Or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne. Said I am making everything new. Then he said write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. That's how it's going to end. And the one who promises, the one whose words are trustworthy and true, is the one who has made it possible, the Lord Jesus Christ, through his victory on the cross, the beginning of the story, looks forward to his coming. The end of the story looks forward to this new heaven and this new earth. And what we look forward to and what we look backwards to are the key event that made it all possible. The Lord Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, the one of whom we've been singing, the lamb seated on the throne. And that is what was revealed to this man, John, near the end of the first century, the last of the apostles still alive. And here he is on the first century equivalent of Alcatraz on the prison island of Patmos, suffering for his faith. God says to him, John, this is how it's all going to end. And it fills him with courage. As one writer puts it, on Patmos we suffer, but in Christ we reign. And it is the only thing, this ending, which will make sense of the sufferings of our life. It is the only thing that makes sense of death. It's the only thing that makes sense of sickness. It's the only thing that makes sense when your partner betrays you. It's the only thing that makes sense when there is an earthquake, a disaster in our broken and groaning world. It's to know how the story is finally going to end. Now, my opening illustration was inadequate in all sorts of ways, not least in the fact that the Rugby 2003 World Cup is all past history. Nothing can change the events. But in this story that we're looking at, the story of salvation, although the end is assured and all is known to God who lives in eternity, we still live in time. We are participants in the story. We are not couch potatoes sitting watching it happening. We are participants in the story. Every one of us, a part of this ongoing story, either as servants of the King of Kings or as rebels against his authority. And then its opening chapter, this last book of the Bible, highlights the event which will herald the end of the story, the second coming of Jesus. 
Revelation 1 says, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. So we look forward to the second coming of Jesus. David, are the, the pictures we lost somewhere here? Right, that's good. We're back up to speed. We look forward to the second coming of Jesus. But we also look back to the first coming of Jesus. His life, his death, and his resurrection and ascension. And these two great events act like kind of bookends, if you like. Uh, the first one shows us Jesus ascending into heaven from earth. The story will end when he returns from heaven to earth. And these two events, between these two events, the Bible calls the period between these two events the last days. And they began on the Jewish day of Pentecost, when the followers of Jesus received the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus had promised to equip them for the ministry to which he'd called them, to be witnesses. If you know the story, on the day of Pentecost, the apostles went out into the streets filled with the Holy Spirit, and the crowd said, what's going off? They must be drunk. And Peter, their leader, stood up and said, We're not drunk. This is what the prophets foretold. In the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So the last days are the final chapter in the story of salvation, in which the mission of Jesus is completed. As the followers of Jesus, equipped as he was in his ministry, by the Holy Spirit, carried the gospel, the good news, to all peoples on earth until the return of Jesus. His second coming to earth which brings it to a conclusion. And that was the commission that Jesus gave his followers before he left them. Acts 1 verse 8, very key verse, the commission of the risen Jesus. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what I want to do this evening as we've been looking right through the Bible, I want to look at how this was carried out by these first apostles and followers of Jesus. And we find this in the book of Acts in the New Testament. We've kind of had a great panorama today covering almost the whole of the Bible. So now we come to the book of Acts. And when we come to the book of Acts, we see that carrying out that mission that Jesus gave them, that commission, was no easy process. It wasn't just a simple, smooth progression. They faced barriers and obstacles along the way. And what I want to do is highlight three challenges that they faced, that we're going to face as participants in this great drama. And so let's begin with what I would call, first of all, and they're just words to try and explain it. First of all, there is the geographical challenge. On the day of Pentecost, the spiritful witnesses go out into the streets of Jerusalem declaring the wonders of God in the diverse languages of, of the pilgrims who are gathered for this great festival. Uh, we looked this morning at the story of the Tower of Babel, when people were scattered into different languages. Some people have said that what happened on the day of Pentecost was that Babel was reversed. Well, it was in one sense, in that everyone understood the message. But not everybody became monolingual. There was a difference at Pentecost. The apostles did not tell what God had done in one language, but instead God, God gave them the ability to speak one message in different languages. A foretaste of the church in diverse cultures. We've already sung about it, read about it. That final picture in heaven of every tribe and language and people and nation praising God. So those who claim the language of heaven will be English are absolutely correct. As are those who claim it will be Welsh or Spanish or Cantonese. Or Izere, the language that Nietzsche and I reduced to writing in Nigeria and now has the scriptures. 
or Samat, the language that Teresa and Beata are working in, in Papua New Guinea, or Zam, the language that Stephen and Susan Lawson from our missionary family are working on from Asia. All the different languages will be represented. And in his account in the book of Acts, if you know it carefully, in Acts chapter 2, um, Luke tells us the different places that all the people came from who were present on the day of Pentecost. Uh, there's a map there that shows you all the different places uh, listed in Acts chapter 2. And uh, no doubt there were many among these different diverse peoples who responded. You remember on the end of the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people responded to the message on the day of Pentecost and were baptized. They became part of the church of Jesus Christ. So the interesting question is, what happened to them after this? We can't be sure, but there is some evidence that many of these new converts didn't go back home afterwards, but stayed in Jerusalem. Who could blame them with such exciting things happening in this new spiritual community? The amazing work of God's Spirit. Whatever the case, there is little evidence that the people who came from these places, who became Christians, followers of Jesus, first followers, that they established churches when they went back home. For the next few years, the church in Jerusalem remained in Jerusalem, maybe for five or six years, perhaps a necessary consolidation of what had happened. But the great danger for them is that they would settle in their comfort zone. And even more seriously, they'd fail to carry out the commission that Jesus had given them, to be his witnesses beginning in Jerusalem, not ending in Jerusalem. And extending out from there to Judea and Samaria, the surrounding provinces, let alone to the ends of the earth. Now, this is the first danger that every church in every generation faces. In every place, the geographical barrier. Which means that we settle where we are and we fail to reach out with the commission that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us. Outside our own doors, outside our own subculture where we are comfortable and even blessed by God. But God will not allow them and us to settle there. So what does God do? Well, he makes Jerusalem a discomfort zone. After initial popularity, Luke records that they found favor with all the people in his early chapters. The tide of popularity turns against the first followers of Jesus. It culminates in the death of Stephen, the first martyr who is stoned for his faith in Jesus, led by a young Jewish firebrand called Saul, who later will become Paul the Apostle. Luke records what happens, what we could call leaving the comfort zone. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, Godly men buried Stephen, mourned deeply for him. But Paul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. But notice what happens. The believers, except the apostles, are inadvertently following the Acts 1-8 instructions. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. What seemed like a disaster for the early church was a blessing for the population of Judea and Samaria. As ordinary believers, in the next chapter, we read about Philip going out into Samaria and preaching the good news to despised Samaritans. So the final chapter continues. Now, let's just pause and think about this for a moment. Few Christians, unless you're a masochist, would seek persecution or even martyrdom as some Christians did in the first centuries. But the history of the church, not least in our day, 
is that the suffering church is the growing church. And it shows that God in his sovereignty uses discomfort of all kinds, but particularly suffering and opposition and difficulties, to get us out of our comfort zone and get us out with the good news of Jesus. In places and situations where we would not normally choose, where we would feel uncomfortable. Maybe that's true of us as individuals, some of us, this, this evening. Maybe God has set discomfort into your life. You feel unsettled, or maybe circumstances have happened, or difficulties in your life. And God is using them to move you out, out of your comfort zone, into greater dependence on Him, and greater, greater witness for Him. Maybe it's true of us as a church, it's quite strategic that we're thinking about our property and reaching out from where we've been wonderfully comfortable in this church for so long, this particular building. It's a building. But maybe God is reaching us out to do more. Maybe to plant other churches, do other things. It's great to see what God is doing in Nidri and other churches we've been able to plant. And significantly, there is this outward movement in the book of Acts. It's kind of a tale of two cities, really. It begins in Jerusalem and it ends in Rome with the Apostle Paul still looking to go beyond Rome and maybe even Spain with the good news of Jesus. And within less than a decade from the end of the book of Acts in AD 70, the city of Jerusalem is razed to the ground by the Roman armies. And nearly all the Christians have already left in God's providence and moved down. But this leads us into another challenge we face, which the early church faced and which we face as well. If we're to fulfill the mission of God, the commission of Jesus, what I want to call the theological challenge. Um, after the remarkable and dramatic conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the Apostle Paul, we read that the church enjoyed a period of great peace and prosperity. The first parts of the mission of Jesus were being fulfilled. The churches spread from Jerusalem to Galilee in the north and the surrounding province of Judea and Samaria. But it is still almost entirely a church made up of people who are either Jews or Jewish converts. And if you'd asked people in those days, they'd probably have said that the followers of Jesus were a somewhat unorthodox group that still lived in Jerusalem, still went up to the temple, and still were an integral part of Jewish worship in many ways. But this must change and is about to change if the gospel is not just going to reach the ends of the earth, but all the peoples of the earth and the peoples of all cultures. And where it took them persecution on behalf of God to get them out of Jerusalem, it's going to take an even bigger step to get them out of their culture and out of their theological straitjacket that the Jerusalem church is in. So Luke continues his account in Acts by recording a change in thinking and in practice. In Acts 10 and Acts 11, we're kind of zooming through the book of Acts. Now, I don't have time to go through the whole story in detail. But the way that God does this is by arranging a meeting between Peter, the Jewish leader of the church, and Cornelius, a Roman centurion. God uses a vision that Peter sees. He uses an angel who appears to Cornelius. And he brings the two of them together in a remarkable way that never would have been humanly planned. For Jews didn't go to the homes of Roman centurions and eat with them. So Peter visits and enters the house of Cornelius. And if you don't know the Bible, read the story. It's a wonderful story. It's a strategic story. And having heard his story of the angel, connecting it with his own vision, he begins to preach the gospel to this Roman and his household. Acts 10 says this. Then Peter began to speak. 
I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Notice what he's saying. God sent the good news of Jesus to the people of Israel, but he now accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. He concludes by saying, He, that is Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people, to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And it's a remarkable story. A Pentecost experience comes upon Cornelius and his household. They receive the Spirit, begin to speak in other languages. And so Peter then asks, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Suddenly the gospel has burst its Jewish barriers. Roman centurions are receiving the Spirit and being baptized as believers. Now when Peter asks this question, there are plenty of people back in Jerusalem who are not very happy about this in the slightest. Objections are raised. Uh, Acts 11 begins by telling us, the apostles and their brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Notice, although they have heard that the Gentiles have received the message, their concern, their criticism is aimed at Peter's actions in eating with Gentiles, entering their homes. It's not so much what Gentiles have believed, but what the implications are in practice. The theological issues raise what we could call cultural issues. We could really call this the cultural challenge as well. Do Gentile believers need to become Jews if they're to be accepted by God, by being circumcised? Do they have to behave like Jews and keep all the Jewish ritual law? And Peter's explanation leads to a resolution with the objections answered. When they heard this, Peter's explanation, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. But this is not the end of the story. Cornelius, as we read through the book of Acts, Cornelius is the first of a flood of Jewish, of Gentile believers and Gentiles converts. What follows is the first church that's largely composed of Gentiles at Antioch. We read that in Acts 11, 19-30. There's the first mission to G Gentiles, led by Paul and Barnabas. When the Jews turn away on their missionary journey, they begin to preach the gospel to Gentiles. And it's such a huge big issue that the church in Jerusalem has a huge council meeting to decide what to do about this and what restrictions they should place upon these new, Jewish, these new Gentile believers. And it leads to a final resolution. As James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem now, declares, It is my judgment, therefore, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Now, it's hard for us at this distance to realize what an enormous issue this was. That's why the book of Acts devotes so many verses to the account of what happens and repeats twice the story of Peter and Cornelius. But the implications are enormous, not least for us. Those of us here who were Gentiles, non-Jews, the vast majority of us, did not need to become Jews in order to become Christians. All that is necessary is faith in Christ alone. And we live that faith out in the cultural clothes and practices 
in which we were born so far as they're consistent with the faith uh, that we follow. Producing not, dif not just different languages in which we praise God, but different cultures and tapestry of different cultural expressions of our faith. Uh, one of the wonderful things that Nietzsche and I have experienced traveling all around the world over these past two years and previously for 20 years as missionaries in different parts of the world is seeing the rich variety of ways in which people worship God when you go to church. It's just an amazing experience. But there is always the danger, the theological barrier leads to a cultural barrier that makes us want to make other people conform to our ways of worshiping God. And to feel uncomfortable. But God is a God of diversity. We want people to worship God as though he was Scottish or English or Welsh or whatever. We had a strange experience of this some years ago when we were in the Philippines. We went to a Filipino church where the people spoke only Tagalog and their own tribal language. And you could have transposed our worship band into that church in the Philippines... And what was more, even more incredible, they were singing Hillsong songs in English in a language that they didn't understand at all. And everybody was closing their eyes and just singing this incredible way. And I thought, this is, this is the McDonaldization of Christianity. You know, it's just incredible. And I, thought, and I said to one of the missionaries, can't they sing and praise God in their own language? Or, or they're not used to that, they think it's better in English. Well, it made me think, very strange. Um, very strange behavior. Uh, the theological barrier and the cultural barrier are great barriers. And as we plant church, I was joking last night that Nitra and I have been worshiping in Nidri uh, since we left the chapel. And uh, even going to Nidri, the first week after we visited Nidri, it's very much like us in many ways. We sing similar kind of songs and we preach the same message, but people dress differently. So the first thing my wife said is that uh, the week after we'd been the first Sunday, she said, I need to go to Matalon and get a hoodie. <laughs> uh, and uh, so that we, we, we looked, uh, kind of felt out of place in our, in our smart clothes. Um, and it's just a different cultural expression of the gospel, the way people worship in Nidri, they worship in Charlotte Chapel. Uh, but the gospel is a gospel for all people in all different kinds of cultures. So here are two barriers that we need to overcome, that they needed to overcome in order to complete the mission that God had given them. But there is one more, what I want to call finally, the generational barrier. Um, we get into the end of the book of Acts now. So when you come to the end of the book of Acts, we find Paul in Rome. He's waiting trial under Caesar. Uh, and Luke concludes his account in these words. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in Rome, it's a long journey, there's a map of the journey there on the screen, sorry I missed that. Uh, he'd left Jerusalem, gone all the way to Rome, and he, he concludes with these words. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him, boldly and without hindrance. He preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the date, obviously by our later dating system, they would never have dreamt of dating it according to the birth of Jesus in those days, but the date from our dating system is around 62 AD, give or take a year. What happened next? Well, we don't know from this book because Luke stops his story at Acts 28 in AD 62. But from other records, we can be pretty sure what happened next. Paul's appeal before Caesar is successful 
He's released from prison, and as far as we know, he went and did further evangelistic trips. Maybe he even made it to Spain, as he hoped to do. Whatever the case, around five years later, around 67 AD, we find Paul back in Rome. And here he is once more back in prison. He's awaiting trial again before Caesar, but this time things are very different. Following a devastating fire in the city of Rome, which destroyed about a third of the whole city, the increasingly paranoid Emperor Nero picked on the Christians as scapegoats and blamed them for the fire. There is some evidence that he started it himself, in fact. The Christians were rounded up in their thousands. The fortunate ones were killed on the spot. The less fortunate ones were subjected to a slow and agonizing death, torn to pieces by animals in the arena or tied to pillars, daubed with tar, and set on fire to illuminate the emperor's garden parties. And among those rounded up and brought to Rome is Paul the Apostle, the man most responsible for the propagation and spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's now incarcerated in a deep dungeon in what is known as the Mamertine Prison. You can still see it in Rome, and even with electric illumination. As a picture of the, of the internet there, it, it does not look very appealing, does it? He is chained to his guards, and this time he knows there will be no reprieve. This is the end of the line. And so he writes a final letter to his young colleague, Timothy, who's now pastoring a church in Eph the church in Ephesus. And he says to him, the time has come for my departure. Now stop a moment and think about this. If you had been a gambling man, which I hope you know, um, when Paul wrote this final letter, you would have got very long odds on the survival of Jesus Christ, of the church of Jesus Christ, beyond at most a couple of decades. Paul is about to die. Almost all the first witnesses of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus are dead. Many of them martyred for their faith. Humanly speaking, it looks pretty grim. But Paul is not pessimistic. Why? Because he knows the end of the story. He knows that the Lord Jesus Christ, as he promised, said, I will build my church and even the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. But he knows also from a human perspective, Timothy and others have a responsibility, a vital part to play in building the church for the future. And so in this last letter to Timothy, which you can read in our New Testament, to Timothy, he tells Timothy he must do two things to ensure the survival of the church of Jesus Christ. One, he says you must guard the gospel. 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. He says, what you've heard from me, the gospel, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives within you. He says, the gospel is like treasure. You must look after it. You must guard it. It must be kept safe, intact from corruption. But it mustn't be locked away in a safe. For the second thing he tells Timothy is you must pass this gospel on to other people. He says, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will be able qualified to teach others also. Like runners in a relay race, the next generation must pass on the baton from Timothy to reliable men and women down through the generations. The gospel needs to be passed on down the generations if it's to survive. Now the New Testament doesn't tell us what Timothy did. 
But we know that he obeyed what Paul said because he and others continued to pass on the gospel baton. How do we know that? Because we're here in Charlotte Chapel this evening. Because eventually down the centuries, the gospel came to the shores of Scotland and England. And from there in great missionary movements to the ends of the earth in the 18th and 19th centuries. But we face the same challenge that Timothy and every generation face. We must guard the gospel because there are many who would seek to distort it, to dilute it, and even to destroy it. We must preserve it intact, but we must also pass it on to the next generation by making disciples who make disciples. You see, the survival of the Church of Jesus Christ in any place, or in any church, including Charlotte Chapel, is not guaranteed. For in places where it once flourished, the gospel flourished in North Africa, and in what was called Asia Minor, where the letters to the seven churches were written in the first part of the book of Revelation. All those churches were wiped out by the spread of Islam in the seventh century, the tenth centuries, because they failed to guard the gospel and to pass it on. That doesn't mean the church of Jesus Christ has failed. God's plan continues. But in any particular place, it will only survive if we guard it, pass it on. The great tragedy today is the Church of Jesus Christ is growing all over the world except in Europe and North America. We live in sad days. You talked to our brother Andrew McCabe who shared this morning. The gospel is multiplying in a place like India. People are desperate coming. We heard about, about the evangelist Wilson who's led 175 people to the Lord in the last six months. Do you imagine in Charlotte Chapel if you said, we've had 175 converts? The gospel is still spreading in these wonderful places. But we need to ensure in our generation that we continue to pass on the gospel to the next generation, to make disciples who make disciples. These were these three great challenges that the Church of Jesus Christ faced. Geographical challenge, the theological challenge, the generational challenge. The end of the story is certain, but we're invited to be part of it. The final ending, the mission of God, the story of salvation. We began this morning by looking at Abraham. God's promise to him that through him, all nations on earth will be blessed. So here's the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. And notice the nations come into it right at the end. God fulfills his plan. Revelation 21, 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree... Our trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. His servants will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The story is being continued. But we are part of the story. We're invited to be participants in the story of salvation. 
the greatest story there is, the only true authentic story. And as we do so, think of my pitiful opening illustration, we do so with confidence because we know that the outcome is certain. It's a kind of poor illustration. I can twist it somewhat. It's like watching the game, knowing what the ending is going to be. And when the final kick comes, somebody points to you in the crowd and says, come and take the final kick. Take part in this game. That's a better illustration. But we can be part of the action. Our lives have significance because we know the end of the story. Paul recommended this morning Patrick Johnson's book, Operation World, a great tool for knowing what's happening in the world. And here's his summary in the last edition, which I have, I must get the new edition. But I leave you with this final quote. And this is what he says. He says, for the first time in history, we can meaningfully talk of the real possibility of world evangelization in our generation. What a privilege, what a responsibility to be a Christian alive today. What a privilege, what a responsibility to be a Christian alive today, part of this great story. I hope you're part of the story, and I hope you'll immerse yourself in it, and it will give you confidence, whatever you're going through at the present time, to know that the end of the story is certain, and we have this great future and this great hope. Let's just bow in prayer together.